0: Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, chapter 2. We are continuing in a study through the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is all about why Jesus Christ is utterly supreme. It is a thesis, a theological treatise, but it's not just that, it's a sermon. Uh, Just to remind you that it is a written sermon was intended to be read aloud in the congregation so that people could hear this. And so he writes, he uses rhetorical devices the same way a guy preaching a sermon uses rhetorical devices to hopefully motivate his audience, stir them to some type of a response. Starts off, and in the first five, four and a half chapters, uh, he really spends his time talking about Jesus in his person and why his person is supreme. And in that series of arguments, he's going to move along three big lines with some sub-themes in them. The first is Jesus is superior to the angels. We talked a little about that last week. We'll talk a little bit more about that this week. Second, he is superior to the leaders of the Exodus generation back in Jewish history because the audience to whom he's writing and the letters being read to are people who are Jewish, largely. And people that have made a profession of Christ... We don't know whether that profession is a possession, as we really don't know with anyone. Uh, our life bears that out, not just praying a prayer. It's the nature of our commitment. It bears that out and authenticates that faith that's resident. But nonetheless, he's writing them, and so he's comparing them, Jesus to the Exodus leaders, and then he compares Jesus to the high priest of the Old Testament and begins a process that he'll move to in the mid-part of the book about why Jesus' sacrifice is superior to the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Now, in addressing Jesus being superior to the angels, he's going to work along two lines. He works along this line Jesus is superior because Jesus is the Son of God that was promised long ago, the Messiah. Now he's going to move from who Jesus is a little bit as he defines why he's superior to the angels and talk about Jesus' superiority. He's already mentioned as the Son. Now, as Savior. This is something the angels could not do for you. In Jewish history though, the angels were elevated, the angels were lifted up as some type of mediators, if you will, between God and man. We'll see in our text this morning how in Jewish history they thought that the law had come through the angels. This is part of their historical writings. And so they elevate the angels and he's trying to say no you're elevating the wrong person or the wrong individuals, it is Jesus, he is the one uniquely qualified to be your savior. So what he's going to do is spend time talking about why he is uniquely qualified to be their savior. We're going to look at a few characteristics of him, but before we get there, I need you to look in chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 4 is a little section in these few verses that is the first of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Just like every preacher goes and then he gets on a soapbox, right? And if he's worth his salt, hopefully he has some consistency in his soapboxes. Um, That's kind of what these warning passages are a little bit. It is the preacher teaching about Jesus and then he stops for a moment and says, He brought a great salvation to you. Don't you forfeit or blow it. You have professed Christ. Now is your lifestyle matching that profession? You'll notice this though. He always speaks to them. And this is so important, so important to understand this book. This is not an easy book to understand. It's so important that you understand that he is is taking their confession of faith and he is operating on the premise that it's genuine. If one of you come to me and say, I've come to Christ, I've put my faith in Christ, I'm not going to be cynical and say, oh yeah, well, let's just see about that, mister... No, I'm going to think that what you've said is what has genuinely happened. Do I know or does anyone know if that's what's genuinely happened? Well, you know because you know the nature of your belief. But I also know that we're really good at masquerading as people too. I also know that I've said before to, to the store clerk when she says, how are you doing today? Fine. When she really didn't want to hear all my junk from that day, I promise you. I wasn't doing fine. So I walked out and basically lied to her, right? I masqueraded a little bit. And we're pretty good at that. That's kind of part of our nature as being chameleons a little bit, right? So what he's writing, he's saying, listen, you guys have made a profession. I'm gonna operate on the basis that that's true, but listen, let me encourage you, live a life consistent with it. So he gives them five stern warnings. When you come to the book of Hebrews, don't take your tradition, your culture, And don't take the way that you use Christianese and biblical language and superimpose it on the author of Hebrews. Because he wasn't an American Christian. Okay? The guys that wrote the Bible, they weren't Americans. I don't... Shh, shh, Don't tell anyone. Okay? They weren't. They had different thought processes than we do a little bit. They said it in different ways. And so does he. So look at this passage here. And... uh, Let me just give you, these are the five warning passages, all right? It's a little teaching up front here. But these are the five warning passages, and what happens is they gain intensity as they go. And and that's not just something arbitrary, I'm not just saying that so it sounds neat. They really do, and it's written right in the language of how they're used. So look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay more careful attention. Like the Puritans used to say, God loveth adverbs. The whole idea being it's not what you do, but it's how you do it. And God cares about how you're doing it, so that's why he says, pay careful attention. Therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not, and you might underline in your Bibles, drift away. so that we don't. Here's what he, he's starting off, and he's not saying, don't you go out and be willfully rebellious and turn your hearts against God. He's saving that for chapter 10 and chapter 12. All right, And he's going to build up incrementally to that. What he starts is in saying, listen, if you've come to Christ, then you've got something pretty special. If you've come to Christ, then he's done something that that is is happening in your heart. Faith alone saves you, as as many of the reformers said. But they also said this, oftentimes the faith that saves is not alone, meaning it produces something. Christ came into my life, I don't just kind of clip along, as Mark mentioned in his baby dedication that he read. I don't just kind of clip along and it doesn't do anything for me. A cosmic shift has happened in the way I view reality. I realize now that I have a transcendent purpose. I realize now that I'm not my own. So things are changing, and the point is, he's saying, don't don't ignore this salvation. Something's happened inside you. In fact, I think he might say, if you could ignore it, then maybe you never possessed it. Don't ignore it. Don't drift away from it. The idea of, like, you're going downstream. If you've ever gone uh, whitewater rafting, right, you're going downstream, the checkout point is here. And if you get talking uh, in that great Saturday Night Live skit, you talk amongst yourselves, and you just kind of go on by it, guess what? You're going to have a hard time getting back upstream. You're going to have to get out someplace else. Who hasn't been driving? and gotten talking in a conversation or listening to a song on the radio or like you gentlemen listening to XM radio, listening to Martha Stewart on your way to work, and you're heading there and you're so wrapped up in what's there on the radio that you miss your turn. We've all done that, right? We've all done that. We, we get confused. We fall kind of into some danger. I'll never forget my father. And I may have shared the story with you before, but my father, when my wife and I were dating. We went with my parents from New York down to North Carolina to see my aunt down the Charlotte area. Visited with her uh, and we were on our way back up coming up Highway 81 going through Virginia. We're on our way back up through and we came to an area in the highway that was bottlenecking because of construction. So two, three lanes are converging. And they're coming down into one lane. My father is driving our the car. My wife and I are sitting in the back. We're heading, going about 65 miles an hour, something like that. And as we come to this bottleneck, all of a sudden my father frantically, frantically yells out, no brakes, no brakes. And you know, my mother's a nervous wreck at this point. She turns around, kids, hold on. And so she puts her hand here like that's going to stop us if we hit something anyway. Uh, <laughs> we would have died if my mother didn't put her arm out. But anyway, she puts her arm out. Hold on, kids! No brakes! So he, he grabs the emergency brake, pulls up the emergency brake. Y'all wonder, will it stop me? It will. It'll stop you. He pulls up the emergency brake. We veer off to the side of the road. And then my parents have one of these, not, you know, when your parents, you tell your kids, it's not an argument mommy and daddy are discussing. So they had this, heat, this uh, vibrant discussion. And they're going back and forth. And my father says, oh, great, as only my dad could do. Oh, great. <laughs> I'm sorry, takes back to memories. Oh great, we, I've got to walk up the road to the next exit. Can't believe it, I've got to go. My mother, you're not going, Bill. The road, look at all this traffic. You can't walk up the side of this highway. I've got to go, you're not going, I've got to go. You're, they're going back and forth. She says to him, no man wants to hear this at this point. I'm telling you now, I'm telling you now. She says to him, just try the brakes. Just try the brakes. And all of a sudden, my father's head goes back and he begins to laugh because the whole time he realized he'd been pushing the clutch instead of the brake. So, all this drama because he's just not paying attention, right? One of my father's more stellar moments behind the wheel. But anyway so don't tell me I drive like my father all right but anyway here's the point he wasn't paying attention and you know what the truth of the matter is if he lived and uh, if he operated in that moment continually on that assumption and the emergency brake didn't work what could have happened? who knows who knows see not being conscious of the realm in which you reside becomes pretty important for whether or not you're gonna crash and he says don't drift by Salvation. Don't ignore it. It's dynamic. For if the message spoken by angels, that's the reference that I mentioned in Jewish tradition and history, it comes down through some of the what we call intertestamental literature, the literature between the Old Testament and the New Testament, those historical things that have been found. They're not canonized in our scripture, but they do have some historical value, and as we look at those, it's made fairly clear that the message or the law was given by angels. Angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. He says, if that's what the law said, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This is the warning. Pay attention. It's vital. If you don't put on the brake when you're supposed to, it could be pretty crucial to where you're going to end up. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. So the authors removed a couple generations from the lord god at least one generation god also testified to it by signs wonders and various miracles and gifts of the holy spirit distributed according to his will making the point that the reason for the signs and wonders when we look in the book of acts is to validate what god is doing at that point in time and so he's saying this salvation comes and it comes with a lot of hoopla it doesn't slip into the world unawares instead the book of acts is all about the hoopla It's all about what's going on, the dynamics around it, so that people... The book of Acts is essentially saying to us, pay attention! Pay attention! Look what happened here! This salvation has invaded the world, and it's transforming hearts and lives. Listen up! And so the author of Hebrews comes behind and says, here's what you need to listen up to. And he's giving the content to the hoopla is really what's happening. So... Let's look at a few couple characteristics of this Jesus. You'll notice this warning essentially begins and just says, don't be careless about your salvation. Don't be careless about your salvation. Three characteristics of Jesus. First, Jesus in a way we don't often speak about him. Jesus, the perfect man. Jesus, the perfect man. Any verse in scripture is not responsible to give you the sum total of all your theology. We get theology because we bring the verses together and we say here's what the Bible is telling us in its totality. This is a component of what the Bible teaches you and I about Jesus. In fact, the author of Hebrews is using this as his argument to say this is what qualifies him to be your Savior. Because he's not a guy that walked down through the Via Dolorosa and as he goes down this path with the mockings, the floggings of men, Uh, verbal assaults, the condemnation of the entire culture on him. He's not someone who's aloof to you having a little trouble. He's not someone who's disconnected from the troubles that you feel. And that's real important to the author of Hebrews. I would say it's maybe one of the most important things as he forms his argument. So verse 5 says, "...it's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking." Uh, he's saying, listen, it's not to, angels weren't given sovereignty. Okay? Angels were ministering spirits sent to minister to those who would receive salvation. That's going back up to chapter 1, verse 14. That's the job of angels. What he's saying is they didn't have the right to rule. Jesus did as the Son. But there is a place where someone has testified, I think this is funny because here he's quoting something that Surely, he probably knew the reference, but he just kind of says, it's like when someone comes up to me and says uh, something that's a little offhanded that I'm pretty confident is not in the Bible, and they go, well, it's in there somewhere. I've read it in there somewhere. Whenever somebody says it's in there somewhere, I always go, it's probably not in there anywhere. Um, But here, this is kind of what he does. It's kind of interesting. He's like, yeah, somewhere it says. Uh, And here's the quote. It's from Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels or the heavenly beings. Uh, The word in the Hebrew is actually the word Elohim, which is the word often used of God. But it's not solely used of God. It's used of God in context. It's also used of celestial or heavenly beings in context. So he says here, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. Now, two different ideas there. You made him a little lower, so the transcendent God, who the scripture tells us in Colossians chapter 1, John chapter 1, is the creator of the world, all right? Jesus, the Son, comes to earth, humbles himself, Philippians 2, all these passages could just be plugged into this outline basically, comes to earth, dies as a sacrifice for you and I, humbles himself, as Paul says, to death, even death on a cross, then what happens, the last part of Philippians 2 tells us that he was then exalted, so then he's taken back up. The psalm is putting that kind of in a little encapsulated form. Now, in its original context, it probably has a first reference to humans. The thought that you and I are created with glory and honor. What does that mean? That means the lowliest individual you know, the least attractive, the least financially prominent, the dreg of society is worth your time, efforts, and energy, Right? It is endowed, that individual is endowed with glory and with honor. But the glory of that individual does not equal the glory of the, even the human aspect of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was unblemished humanity. So that when Adam and Eve fell, when they sinned, when they rebelled in the garden, what happened there? It it was, listen, first of all, let me say, it was a bad thing, okay? It was a bad thing that that happened. Because what happened is, this perfect creation that God steps back and looks at and says, it's good. In fact, then he creates man and he says, it's real good. That's real good. All of a sudden, loses a little bit of its luster. So that we say that the image of God is, and it's this phrase, it's defaced, but it's not erased. Meaning all of you still resemble and have, and I don't mean physically, but I mean in your makeup, your intellect, emotion, and will, the fact that you have glory, the fact as you see in Genesis 1 that you have been given limited sovereignty. You've been given a responsibility to govern the resources of the earth well. These things are part of the image of God. You have those, but guess what? You don't do them as well and you don't reflect them as well as you would have before the fall. After the fall, though, it's marred a little bit. That's why you're not, some of us are touch emotionally imbalanced right and every spouse is going yeah Uh, sometimes we don't think quite clearly right sometimes we are a little weak-willed or maybe we're too strong-willed and we have a hard time finding this balance as we live in community right sometimes we don't affirm the glory of others and sometimes we don't come through with our responsibilities right we're not perfect at keeping the image of God not like we would have before the fall Jesus is our glimpse of what Man was like before the fall this is a glimpse and this is what the author's trying to develop and it comes through real strong later on so this kinda qualifies him if you will as the perfect man in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him uh, because the irony is that as he comes in obedient to death then he's exalted as a king yet at present we do not see everything subject to him but we see Jesus now he's, this is what he's saying he's saying listen don't get lost in the language focus on Jesus in his humanity, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. Why? Why? See, as the perfect man, now he gets the right, if you will, to become this substitutionary sacrifice for you and I, and that's right where he goes. Because he suffered death so that by the grace, and you might underline that, the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I'd like you to circle a word in your Bibles, if you would, and that is the word for, the word for. It is a Greek word, huper, and what this word is important because what this word means is on behalf of or in the place of. It's an important word because it speaks about how Jesus is our substitute. He's the one who takes our place. So that he says here, he suffered death so that by the grace of God. The grace of God. So this idea that he comes, he takes my place, because of God's grace, they merge and they come to the context of salvation for me. This is why for me to say, and listen carefully to this, very important. Uh, As I was talking with one man one time in a conversation on an airplane, he said, are you saying that if God was 36 inches away and I had filled up even an eighth of an inch of that 36 by my own works, that that just kind of nullifies the whole thing? My answer to him, I think, surprised him. I said, exactly, you got it. (laughs) That's exactly what I'm saying. My point is, who am I to think, independent of someone else mediating on my behalf, that I could stand before a holy, righteous God? Guess what? If we're real honest, you all know yourselves way too well to answer that one truthfully. Really. You and I know we'd stand naked before the Lord and be ashamed. Every one of us, the best one of us in here. Even if you were perfect from this day forward, you couldn't go back and undo the past. You can't. There's only one who can There's only one who can go back and cover it. There's only one who can say, I'll remember him no more. And that's him. That's God. So what does he do? Out of grace, he sends Jesus as his emissary to invade this fallen world. And so he sends one to invade the fallen world who himself was not tainted by that fallenness. So being the perfect man, now he becomes the perfect emissary to rectify the relationship, the chasm that exists between you and God. He fills up all 36 inches. And if you don't believe that, then here's what you've got. You've got you and God working together for something, and guess who that makes your Savior? You. That makes you your Savior. But let's be honest, we know better than that. We know better than that. Christ comes and he transforms us so that now we're changed to work for his good pleasure. It's a beautiful, beautiful thought. And, and it's interesting, you know, when I go out and I'll and we'll share, we got some people this week that are going to start EE, e., Evangelism Explosion in the church. One of the things they're going to learn is that we, when we talk to people about the gospel, one of the things we share with them is this picture of how God in his character is loving and merciful god is love first john 4 8 tells us but at the same time this other wheel is spinning god is just uh, exodus 34 tells us he will not let the guilty go unpunished these two wheels are spinning and as i share the gospel with somebody i've already explained to them this principle of these inches and there's nothing you can do to, to do merit favor with god you can't earn it so guess what you're in a peck of trouble god's loving He doesn't want to punish you. He's just. He's got to punish you. He's like a good parent. No parent spanks their kids and goes, woohoo! Wasn't that a good time? Boy, let's do that one again. Right? If you do, you may want to check yourself in somewhere. God didn't like that. But I'm in a quandary because I can't change my own situation and I'm caught between these two wheels. And when you get caught between two gears, guess what? You're going to get pinched. So Jesus steps in and greases the gears. (laughs) He steps in. And that's where Jesus comes in as the one to take your substitute to satisfy the wrath of God and to communicate His love for you. Isn't it that beautiful? That's the gospel. Look at your text again. He's the perfect man. Oop. Let me head there, Chris. Jesus, the perfect man, and Jesus is also our pioneer. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then he gives this series of quotes. But I want you to look back. In bringing many sons to glory, he's the pioneering savior. He's gone on before us. What qualified him to do that? Well, he's the perfect man that qualified him to do that. He's also God, but we're just focusing on the the human aspect of Jesus right now. The author wants us focused there. In bringing these sons to glory, here's what's interesting. Look at this phrase, it was fitting. It was fitting. It always is astonishing to me when someone says this, I could never believe in a God who would do X, Y, Z. Fill in the blank. He would condemn people to eternal punishment, who would kill his own son so as to benefit other people, who would allow tragedy to come into the world. I could never believe in a God like that. Do you know what's happened there? Is that person has not contributed anything to our knowledge of God. They've contributed a lot to our knowledge of them. But nothing to our knowledge of what God is like. You want some contributions to what the knowledge of God is like Hear what God says is fitting for him so God says that it's fitting for him to send his son he should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering or complete meaning his mission is completed through his suffering this is why the Old Testament in Isaiah 53 says this that doesn't fit sometimes with our understanding of reality it pleased him to bruise That is, it pleased God to bruise his son. How would it ever please a father to bruise his son? It pleased him in this regard because you sat here this morning, if you've trusted in Christ alone as your Savior, redeemed, washed, cleansed, renewed, ready to take on life. Not drifting past the checkout point. You're paying careful attention. And you sit here, And God has added sons and daughters and sons and daughters and sons and daughters from all walks of life. Why? Because one was bruised for you. He's the pioneer. He went before and he endured this suffering so that you and I could experience the beauty of this glory. The author of their salvation, the literal Greek word there is pioneer or pathfinder. The pathfinder or pioneer of their salvation, perfect through suffering. But the one who makes men holy... And those who are made holy are of the, and watch this, the, the NIV takes a little liberty here, the New International Version. You may have a different version. King James Version probably takes the least liberty and gets it the closest in this particular translation. Um, the King James Version says something like, uh, and all are of one. It, it, there is no concept of same family here. And here's why I don't like this translation, is because here's what it indicates, or maybe here's what it could lend itself to, is this errant thought. Jesus and myself, Jesus and you, are of the same species. Uh, In German, no danke, (laughs) no thank you. Listen, man, we're not of the same species, all right? At all, we're very, very, very different. Jesus was the eternal God-man who pre-existed and breathes life into you every day of your life and could snuff you out in an instant. Uh, Some of you got some power, but none of you can do that to me, okay? Jesus is the one that does that. He is very different from me. The the NIV, is what it's trying to say, it's trying to bring this connectedness to say, Jesus walked the path that we walk. Jesus is acquainted with what we are acquainted with. He'll say that all the way down towards the end of the passage. Jesus can identify with us, and Jesus has a connectedness to us. And he's wanting to really, really emphasize that. So the Greek just says they're all of one. They're all of one. We're in a connectedness to Christ. That's important. But the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Can I ask you a question on the heels of that? Jesus is not ashamed to call you if you've put your faith and trust in him, his brother or his sister. He's not afraid to identify in a connectedness. And if we want to use the metaphor of family, that's great. In a family connectedness to you. He's not ashamed of that. My question is, are you? Are you? Frederick Beekner bless his name, has a wonderful, wonderful sermon that was written out about, and it's all about, it's called A Sign by the Highway. And it's all about how he was driving down the road one day and he saw a sign, one of these neon lit signs that says, Jesus saves. And he realized that inside, it made him feel awkward. And it wasn't the part about saves, and it wouldn't have been awkward if he saw Christ saves and it wouldn't have been awkward if he saw God saves but he reconciles in his mind and I think it's very insightful that it's because it says Jesus saves why because it bespeaks of a humanity of God invading humanity identifying with us rectifying a situation we couldn't rectify rescuing us from something we couldn't rescue ourselves from and it is implicitly embarrassing and humiliating to us so that we, we we don't feel as awkward and we can speak with great ambiguities. I can go out today and say to somebody, boy, God made a beautiful day today, and I don't feel the least bit embarrassed. Boy, Jesus Christ created an awesome day today, didn't he? He just said the J word. Yeah. Try this. Some of you are going to go out to lunch today. Try this one. Just try it for a day. Come on. Go to lunch. Sit at lunch. Your waitress or waiter's going to come over. Look them in the eye and say, you know what? We go down to church down to Lifeline Community. And uh, one of the things we believe in is prayer. And we're going to pray over our meal in just a minute. Is there anything we could pray for you while we pray for our meal? <laughs> Couldn't I just leave one of those tent cards This is Lifeline Community? <laughs> Stretch yourself a little bit. Just kind of extend and be a representative of God. Don't be ashamed of the name. What, what, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Christians say it like this all too often. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. It's power of God to salvation. Did you get the last part? It's the life-transforming gospel that gives you purpose and meaning. All of life is a jumbled mess, but Jesus brings it all in line. He brings it all in line. Life to us looks like a kid that can't read looking at one of those word finds. What in the world is this thing doing? And then someone who can read comes along and begins to draw some circles around those things that are diagonally in a row, across, and up and down. And all of a sudden now it begins to make sense what this whole thing that looks like jumbled nonsense means. That's what Jesus does. He brings coherency to life. All the streams come together in the person of Christ. Beautiful, beautiful thought. Look at your text again. So he's not ashamed to call brothers. Then he dips to the Old Testament, Psalm 22, which was a messianic psalm that uh, spoke prophetically of Jesus. I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I'll sing your praises. You say, I'm, <laughs> listen, I'm not going to be ashamed of you. I'm ready to open the door for you and welcome you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I in the children God has given me. And here's what's happening. These are two passages from Isaiah chapter 8. And what's happening is when the author of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. There was a translation done 200 B.C. called the Septuagint. It was revered by the Jews, and it was a good translation. And most of the time when the author of Hebrews quotes from the Old Testament, he is quoting the Septuagint. And here, and this is a good example of this, he's actually pulling in the Septuagint's translation of Hebrews, and the Septuagint took the word I and gave it the word "Kyrios" in the Greek. Well, what's that mean? The word "Kyrios" is Lord. So how this should be read is, uh, like the first one, I the Lord will put my trust in him, or here am I the Lord and the children God has given me. It's The Lord the transcendent one speaking about another transcendent one what's the implication Jesus talking to God so now if we read it like that what Jesus this is a proclamation that Christ is making in verse 13 Jesus is saying I will put my trust in him I'm going to trust in God Uh, he did that remember the whole exchange in the garden not my will but yours be done it's this it's this not that his will was not aligned with the father but he's saying in the grappling with his humanity, in this mystery of the incarnation, as he grapples with the will of his humanity, he simply says, We're going we're to do what, what, do what we planned all along. He's just affirming the course. And again, he says, Here am I in the children God has given me. It's a little odd for Jesus to speak about us as children, but he's quoting this Old Testament passage to make the point. We're in connectedness to him, we're in family relationship. So he's our pioneering Savior in that he goes before us in this fallen world. He lives within this fallen world in such a way that now you and I can follow his path because of what he's done on our behalf. And now we're going to wrap it up here in verses 14 through 18. The powerful Savior. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by death, he said, essentially what he's saying is this, all that I've said so far, here's the point of it all. He shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Three times this word is used in key key areas, once referring to uh, sin and once referring to death. Here it's referring to the devil. And it speaks about this idea of not an annihilation, the devil still exists, but a type of destruction in a way that, The object destroyed is not now what it once was. And he's saying he destroyed the one who holds the power of death. That Satan lorded over me before I would come to Christ, and now he destroyed him. Not only is he the great destroyer, but look in verse 15. And this is one of the most beautiful verses you're ever going to find in the Bible. And free those who all their lives, all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death he's the great destroyer and guess what that makes him the great emancipator the one who sets you and I free he's qualified to do that he sets us free meaning he lets us see now in new ways he lets us experience life in new ways anybody here ever read Annie Dillard Annie Dillard is one of the great, great, just pure, if, if you just like good writing, it's phenomenal. And you learn how to write well when you read someone like this. She won a Pulitzer Prize for this book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And it's kind of a little bit like Thoreau's uh, Walden a little bit, but it's it's, it's just got a, it's a little, uh, little journey through nature with reflections on God is kind of what it boils down to. It's pretty interesting. In this, she has a little side note. She tells us, Uh, she tells about reading a book and she recounts some of the book and the book was about when western surgeons first realized that uh, they could remove cataracts from individuals when they realized they could remove cataracts and they performed the surgery they recounted and this author recounts what some of the accounts after the removal of cataracts who their whole life had not been able to see what it was like for some of those patients and it is fascinating as as you know one looks at a thing of grapes and says it's 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 smooth and it's got holes in it, uh, and they look at uh, they look at other objects, a flower, uh, and call it the tree with the lights in it, and they don't know how to to bring what the things that they are seeing into any sense of reality. Remember when Jesus heals the blind man, and he says, "I see men and they're walking around. And they look like trees. There's no category." There's no category. The guy probably sat under trees his whole life. People told him this is a tree. He felt it. He's like, oh, it's tall, it's big, it stretches out. These guys are tall, they're big, they stretch out. What's he doing? He's correlating ideas in categories he doesn't have. He doesn't know what to say. But think about the wonder of discovery in that moment. How many of you come out and you look over here at the gorgeous view of these Wasatch Mountains and you don't give a second thought to it? Well, get, let me tell you something. Go live in Dallas for about a year, all right? I did it for six and a half. Go live there and see the 100-foot hill that you go over when you go into to Duncanville. Realize that's the highest point within about 300 miles, all right? Drive through Oklahoma and zip over the Arbuckle Mountains. Hmm? All right, it'll be a tough one. You may have to put that puppy in third gear. And then come back and look at the beauty that you get to see every day. See, sometimes we be, things become so common because they're familiar, and Annie Dillard basically talks about this in reflecting on it, and she makes some statements. Um, she talks about how she has preformed categories, and how she cannot get back to that initial sense and that wonder of discovery. She uses a phrase at one point. She says, "I couldn't unpeach the peaches." I couldn't see them for what they are. They're just peaches, and that's all I know them to be, but I couldn't see the absolute scientific wonder of this little fruit that we eat and we enjoy. I couldn't understand that now because I've got my own little preformed category. She goes on and says this. Martin Buber tells this tale. Rabbi Mendel once boasted to his teacher, Rabbi Elimelech, that evenings he saw the angel who rolls away the light before the darkness, and morning the angel who rolls away the darkness before the light Yes, said Rabbi Elimelech, in my youth I saw that too. Later on you don't see these things anymore. But then listen to this next paragraph. Why didn't someone hand those newly sighted people paints and brushes from the start when they still didn't know what anything was? Then maybe we all could see color patches too. The world unraveled from reason, and listen carefully, Eden, before Adam gave names. All of a sudden I see the world through my fallenness. But now when I'm set free what happens a whole new life opens up I'm set free to embrace the beauty the grandeur and the glory of God and the purpose for which I was created if you feel like you're swimming but not going anywhere if you feel like your wheels are turning but the car isn't going anywhere know this Christ has the answer for you and if you look within yourself you're not going to find it and if you look within some system of thought you're not going to find it. If you look within family tradition, it'll be empty and void. If you look for external relationships, you won't find it. If you look for addictions, you won't find it. Take your pick. You'll find it in one thing. Not a system of thought. Not some deep scientific rationale. You'll find it in a person. And he died on the cross for you. And he rose so that you could have life. It's called the gospel. He takes care of it all. I don't do anything to free myself wind up the text look here and I'm done for this very reason he had to be uh, verse 16 says for surely it's not angels he helps but Abraham's descendants that just means salvation's for you not anyone else for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest merciful because he doesn't want to punish you faithful because he endures high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. That is a theological word. We don't have time to explain, but it means this. God poured out his wrath on his son for you. That's what that word means. An atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. The last point is this powerful Savior is a sympathetic high priest. He knows what you've gone through. He knows what a bad day is. He knows what human tragedy is. He knows what it is to weep over lost loved ones. He knows what it is to deal with the milieu of life and and how in a fallen world, life can be tough. He knows all that. So he's earned the right to speak into your life. And his message is a message of hope. It's the message of the gospel. So two things. If you haven't come to Christ, come to Christ. Don't wait. Come to Christ. And you do that by believing in him, trusting in him alone, solidifying your faith confessing to him you're a sinner you need a savior and he's that one then when you go out today the second application is don't be ashamed are you kidding the gates of heaven are kicked open for you and life is abundant full and free so go eat at a good restaurant and pray for a good waiter and a good waitress and pray in your prayer that as they leave that table, they might have seen the light of Christ in you. Bow your heads. You're a good God, and we're grateful. We've gone a little long, but I think it's been worth it. Your word is true, it rings true to our hearts. You're a God who uh, is not ashamed of us, so help us not to be ashamed of you. Ransom us from sometimes the uh, hell on earth that we make of our own lives. And ransom us with the grace of heaven. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.